The Gospel of John. If you have your Bible, which you should, go to chapter 7. This is my NIV Bible. And some of the scriptures that you're going to see on the screen will be in that same translation, just for clarity. And so if you don't recognize that translation, that's the one that I'm reading from. Over 2,000 years ago, you would have seen the people gather three times a year. You would have seen the people go to the city of Jerusalem in the springtime to celebrate Passover. You would have seen them go to the city again in the summer for the festival, the Feast of Weeks. And you would have seen them go to the city in the fall. They celebrated tabernacles. Three times, three major feasts that the nation would gather to celebrate. And Jesus participates in these. And as you pay attention, as you read through the gospel, you're going to see them. John and the other gospel writers kind of use them as anchors for the calendar, for the the movements of Jesus' life. You're going to notice that in chapter 6, when Jesus is multiplying bread for the 5,000 people, it references that this was the time of Passover. That was in the spring, right? March, April, when Passover would take place. Jesus takes five loaves of barley bread. Why barley? Well, because the wheat harvest is celebrated later at the Feast of Weeks. That comes in June. You didn't eat wheat before it was celebrated. First, you made that offering to God at the festival. Then after that, they would start to consume the wheat harvest. But we don't know that because we didn't grow up in that world. So when Jesus takes the barley bread and passes it out, it's this beautiful reminder of Passover and the unleavened bread and the barley that was eaten. Now, five weeks, i got to get this right, seven weeks later, you would have had the Feast of Weeks. This takes place after Passover, and that's when the wheat harvest is celebrated. They bring the wheat bread to the temple. They would present a few loaves of it to God to thank him for the beginning of their harvest. Then after that, people would begin to eat their wheat. All summer long, they would grow and harvest until finally the end of the growing season is done. And at the end of it, they gather together for Thanksgiving. And what do they call that? Feast of Tabernacles. It lined up with what God had taught them that in the seventh month they would remember the time they lived in the wilderness, that they themselves lived in temporary dwellings as they went across towards their promised land, and that God entered a tabernacle with them. While they lived in temporary homes, God lived in a temporary home and dwelt with them. For thousands of years they celebrate it. And now it's connected with the end of their harvest. The first fruits given to God and celebrated. This was an incredible seven-day-long festival. And on the eighth day, the holiest day, they have the greatest celebration before they go home. It also follows the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement comes before, five days earlier, the Feast of Tabernacles. Do you remember the Day of Atonement? That's when the high priest would enter into the temple, into the Holy of Holies. One day a year, taking a sacrifice of blood, sprinkling it seven times over the altar, and all of Israel, symbolically forgiven by one sacrifice on one day. 
the day of atonement of the people. These are incredibly symbolic things. Jesus wasn't there at Passover from what we can tell in chapter 6. And in chapter 7, now it's the fall. Months have passed. Jesus is going to this festival. Everyone's going to be there, though. The Jewish leaders are going to be there. The crowds of Jewish people are going to be there. And Jesus is a wanted man. You might remember, he healed the paralyzed man on the Sabbath. Remember chapter 5? And the Jewish leaders decided after that that they were going to find a way to arrest him and kill him. They had to get rid of him. You might wonder why in chapter 6 he didn't go to Jerusalem for Passover. Well, that could be it. That he'd be taking his life into his own hands by going down to the capital one more time. But now it's come to the festival and the feast and he has to decide what he's going to do. Thousands of people waiting to see him. Thousands of people whispering about him. Who is he? Is he really the one that he claims to be? Could he be the king of old? Could he be the prophet that's been spoken of? These are all the things we think about as we get ready to read John chapter 7. During the Feast of Tabernacles, living water is poured out by the priest as a drink offering. I read this in one of the commentaries. The priest would go down to the pool, probably of Siloam. It was a living water pool. It was fed by a spring, and the, the priest would gather some water. The priest would take it back up to the temple every day of the festival and pour out this sacrifice of living water. They were thanking God for the previous harvest and then asking God symbolically to bring the rains of the next year. Living water poured out before their God. And each night, they lit the menorahs. Four of them. Huge pillars that would have been erected in the women's court of the temple. So one of the outer courts of the temple. They're incredibly tall, and they were lit with bowls of oil on the top to broadcast light across the city. And one Jewish historian wrote, and I read this in the commentary, they said that there was light in every house of the city. There was light in every yard. It was that high, and it was that bright. It was light to everybody. It was light that everybody could see. You remember when the people dwelt in their tents in their tabernacles in the wilderness they followed God's pillar of fire by night God lit the way for them you remember in the wilderness when they ran out of water and God miraculously through a stone provided living water water that flowed not dead water that was stagnant water that flowed for the people these were all celebrated this is the festival that you are stepping into This is the feast that Jesus is walking into. So as you read these stories, just be aware of these things. This is holy and this is sacred. These are the words of the gospel that John wrote. Chapter 7 starts like this. This is verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee... He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee. Go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. 
No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. Even his own brothers didn't believe in him. Jesus, you want them to follow you? You want them to believe in you? Go and bring glory to yourself. Do something miraculous. You might remember in John chapter 6, Jesus claims to be the bread of life. And the people go, show us a sign. Do something amazing. And then we'll believe. Please, Jesus, something that requires require no faith at all. Right? Just give us an incredible sign, undeniably. Then we'll follow. But Jesus is bringing people in through faith, not through signs. But his brothers don't believe in him. And they're telling him, just go. Go into the middle of the festival, make a big deal. Win thousands of people to follow you. They'll follow you. They'll leave the Jewish rabbis. They'll follow you as rabbi. You could be king. You claim to be king? Go establish your kingdom. How hard must it have been to live with brothers like that? His own brothers didn't believe in him. Those are his cheerleaders. That's his family. So now Jesus is at a crossroads. What's he going to do? He could head down to the city where he's surely going to get arrested and die soon. He could gain thousands of followers in one great display. Just like Satan tempts Jesus with. You remember the three temptations? One of them was jump off the temple and demonstrate the power of God as he catches you. What do you think would happen if Jesus did that in the middle of this festival? He'd have a million people following him. It'd be amazing. The world would bow down to him. Satan goes, do it. They'll follow you. The glory will be yours. Jesus says, that's not how we treat God. We don't put God to the test like that. Let's look at Jesus' response. This is verse 6. Therefore, Jesus told them, his brothers, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. Why does the world hate Jesus? Because by revealing God's glory, he was revealing the world's sin. By revealing God's holiness, it's highlighting the distinction between a holy God and a sinful people. So as much as Jesus would love to have a following, would love to have the people of his own nation, his own bride, be willing to follow him and have faith, his life is in direct contradiction to how they want to live. The sin inside of them doesn't want to live that way. So as much as the people look at him and wonder if he's the king, they hate him because of the way he highlights the evil in their hearts. His time hasn't come. What's his time? His time is the great display of his glory. He talks about that in chapter 2. Right? His mom says, they've ran out of wine at the wedding. Jesus, do something. They've ran out of wine. And he goes, this isn't the time for me to display my glory. This isn't the time yet for the world to see it put on display. And his mom's like, do it anyway. 
And what did Jesus do? He listened to his mom, and he made wine. Because you listen to your mom, that's what you do. But his time hadn't come yet. When's his time going to come? When's his full glory going to be put on display? I'll give you a hint. We keep a big symbol of it sitting on the stage for you to see. When the sky goes dark, when it rips in half, when the curtain drops, when the tombs are emptied, the glory of the Father through Jesus will be put on display and the world will know. So Jesus stayed in Galilee. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 10, however, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, this is verse 11, the Jewish leaders, they were watching for Jesus. They were asking, where is he? Where is he? Verse 12, among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. No one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. That's how much fear the leaders had wrapped up in the crowds of people. They're all waiting, they're all watching. If Jesus is the king, when's he going to show up? At the feast, he has to. There's groups of people, I believe in his identity. I saw it, I saw him multiply the bread. I think he's the king. Did you hear? Did you hear about the revival in Samaria? There was a whole town that came to believe in him. Did you hear? I saw the man at the pool. He was paralyzed. Jesus raised him up. I saw it. He walked right through. I saw him. He was carrying his mat. Shouldn't have done that. I saw him. He was walking. There's a crowds of people. And then the other side, there's crowds of people speaking the opposite. I don't believe he's a good man. He's lying. If he was really Messiah, wouldn't he have done more signs? If he was really Messiah, wouldn't he have overthrown some Roman soldiers? Wouldn't he have stuck a few of them already? If he was really Messiah. But they're whispering. Because the Jewish leaders have so much control and influence and power, people are afraid to speak. That's the crowd that Jesus is walking into. Verse 14, not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there, they were amazed. They asked, how did this man get such learning without being taught? This one sticks out to me because of Paul in the New Testament. When there's churches that doubt Paul's credentials to be a good pastor and to be a good evangelist, remember Paul will reference the person who trained him Paul was a student of which rabbi? Gamaliel. He mentions it multiple times. Why does he mention it? Because that gives his words authority. Why do people that go to university hang that piece of paper on the wall in their office? Because they paid a lot of money for that piece of paper. No, why do they hang it up? Because you have to respect my education and you have to respect the words that I say the diagnosis that I make. Look, I have authority to make this decision. I have paper. I was trained. All the rabbis have a rabbi who taught them. 
All the Jewish leaders would have had a rabbi that they studied under. So when they meet Jesus and they go, whoa, he speaks as one that has incredible authority. Who trained you? Whose words are you passing down? What school did you go to? What diploma do you carry? And people say, he has none. He didn't study under any of the great rabbis, none of them. So they're amazed at his teaching. It doesn't make sense. Where is it coming from? And Jesus has the people in the palm of his hand. You're going to see this in the next few verses. In the palm of his hand. This is what he can do. He can claim that all of these words came from himself. That they're his. That he's the incredibly knowledgeable one. And all the glory will be brought to him. He will become the most famous rabbi that this ever existed in Israel. Or the second option is to give all the glory away. He can explain to the people that this knowledge and these words have come from his father. But that means that he's just a messenger of the word. There's not much glory in that. What's he going to do? And how's that going to speak to the Jewish leaders who are there at the crowd with so much control over fear, who just love to draw the glory to themselves? Jesus is going to use this opportunity to make something very clear to the people. He has not come to gain the glory for himself, but to give it away. I shouldn't spoil the ending. You're not going to want to finish the book if I spoil the ending. Verse 16. Keep following along. You can read on the screen. It says in verse 16, Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. See, Jesus' teaching won't make sense to people that choose not to follow the Father. Jesus' teaching is a different covenant. It's a different law. The law of Moses was don't kill someone. Don't cheat on your spouse. Like, if you have an enemy, go punish your enemy. It just makes sense. And Jesus comes and says, what if it's more than that? What if it's loving your enemy? What if it's not lusting about people who aren't your spouse? What if it's not even hating other people instead of just murdering? What if the whole time the Father wanted your heart more than he wanted your hands? He wanted your mind more than he wanted your actions. What if he wanted to change you, not just influence you? Things like that don't make sense to someone who doesn't know the Father and do his will. But Jesus redirects the glory for himself. These words aren't mine. They come to me from the Father. He says somebody who takes the credit for themselves that is drawing in the glory, that's a person that you can't trust. Why? Because they might manipulate the teaching to better their own, like, their own standing with the people. But a messenger has nothing to gain by manipulating the words that he's putting on display. He's representing someone else. That's someone you can trust. And Jesus says, the Father has given me this teaching, and I'm the messenger to you. So you can trust that I'm not just trying 
to gain pomp and circumstance. I'm not just trying to make wealth off my teaching. I'm not desiring to have the position that those Jewish leaders have. I don't want their throne where they sit. You can trust my words. Now he goes into what Moses has given them as the law. And he goes into exceptions that can be made to the law for people to generate their own righteousness. And that sounds like a big thing, but it'll make a lot of sense as we read these last few verses. Take a look at verse 19. You tell me if this makes any sense to you. Jesus says, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet, not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? People are looking around. Are you trying to kill him? I'm not trying to kill him. What's he talking about? Has he lost his mind? Who's trying to kill him? Jesus says, verse 21, I did one miracle. And you're amazed. That word is negative. That word means negatively amazed. You're astonished? I did one miracle and you lose your minds. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it didn't come from Moses, it came from the patriarchs, it came from Abraham. But because Moses gave you circumcision, you circumcise a boy on Shabbat. Now if a boy, if he can be circumcised on Shabbat so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? You, you make exceptions to God's holy law of Sabbath so that you can keep Moses' law. What, because Moses is God? Moses is divine? Like you will lay God's laws down so that you can pursue what Moses has told you to do. You break this all the time. And then I go and I give a man back his life on Sabbath. And now you want to kill me. Unacceptable. How could he do that? Circumcision, that's fine. Restoring someone's life, no way. No way. Jesus goes, where's the consistency in that? What was the purpose of Sabbath? To restore people's lives. To give them rest. It was a day to honor and reflect on God. It draws glory and worship to him. And doesn't a healing of a paralytic draw glory and worship back to God? And yet they've so perverted Sabbath that they don't even understand that that's the purpose that it serves. Jesus has caught them in their own manipulation of the law. He's caught them in it. And look at the last verse. This is as far as we'll go today. Verse 24 says, Stop judging by mere appearances. Instead, judge correctly. Instead, judge correctly. By appearance, Jesus He's doing something wrong. He's teaching a different law. He's a Sabbath breaker. By appearance, Jesus isn't killing any Romans. By appearance, there's no way he's the king. 
He's from Galilee, from Nazareth. He's not even from Bethlehem. There's just no way. By mere appearances, the Jewish leaders are closer to God than Jesus. Look at the way they observe the Sabbath. Look at the way they tithe all of their spices. But are we living for mere appearances? Here's why this becomes so encouraging to you and to me. This is why, like I referenced in communion, that the table of the Lord is for the broken and the hurting. Because Jesus is putting on display that what we're supposed to be is God-glorifiers and not self-glorifiers. If the chief end of man is to glorify God, worship God, and enjoy him forever, then that's our purpose, him. And because that's our purpose, our purpose is not ourselves, so we need to lay that down. That's why you read in the Gospel of Luke that we're supposed to die to ourselves daily and pick up our cross and walk, because we are not the chief end of ourselves. God is. See, Darren, that's a lot of pressure. Every single day I need to win God's affection. Every single day I need to make a bigger deal out of him than out of me. In my thoughts, in my actions, my attitudes. How can I do that? Well, the relief comes in the throne of grace. That grace is sufficient for you in your weakness. That while man judges us by our appearance looks at the outward, you'll recognize that from Samuel, it's God, though, that looks at the heart. That reference comes from when they're looking for the next king, and Jesse is bringing all of his sons before Samuel. This really confused my boys, by the way, when we read this story. Jesse brought all of his sons. Cooper goes, Jesse doesn't have kids. Jesse goes, I have no kids. And I'm like, I know Jesse, but just follow along. Jesse brought his sons... And they look at the oldest one, nope, not good enough. They look at the next one, nope, definitely not him. Look at the next one, can't be him. And they get down and he goes, oh, I don't have anyone else except a teenager. But like, you're looking for the king of Israel. All my sons are adults, but there's one. He's like a kid though. Go get him. God picks him. God doesn't look at the outward appearance. In the outward appearance, David was the least qualified. But when you look at David's heart, he was the most qualified to be God's king. Today's sermon could end painfully crippling for you and for me. It could be a sermon about how we need to look at the way we spend our time, right? Energy, our money. Are we making enough sacrifices for God? Have I put myself on my own throne of my heart or have I put God on the throne? If you look at your calendar, Who gets the majority of your time? If you look at your finances, who gets the majority of your money? If you look at your life, who are you worshiping? Yourself or him? Because it should be pretty darn clear. When people look at you, what do they see? That's how this sermon could end, but it's not going to. And that's a good thing. That's a pretty darn depressing God to worship, isn't it? A God that's just watching you under his magnifying glass. Just examining your mistakes constantly. You can never live up to a God like that. Because you're never going to be able to give enough. You're not going to. You're not going to be able to volunteer enough. 
to win his love and affection. You're not going to be able to read your Bible enough. You're not going to be able to pray enough to make him proud of you. You can't because you're broken and sinful. You will always fall short of his glory. Every day you'll fall short of his glory. But the beautiful thing that sets us free is that his grace is sufficient for us in our brokenness. So whether you give a lot or a little, his love for you doesn't change. It's full. Whether you read your Bible every day this week or whether you've struggled to pick up your Bible for the last month, his grace is extended to you. Whether you volunteer in every aspect of our church or you've volunteered in a decade, he loves you. Yes, we need to examine our own hearts. We need to see whether our lives are built on the worship of creation or on the creator. But grace, grace pours out from the throne of Jesus. That's not just a Christian-y thing that we, we say and we speak of. That's the reason that you can sleep at night. It's going to be okay. His grace will be sufficient for you Tomorrow, his mercies are new when? Every single morning. It means when you wake up tomorrow and you feel like you're not going to be good enough, you're not going to be. But his mercy is going to be brand new tomorrow. What if you get mad and yell at your kids? Yeah, his mercy is going to be brand new the next day too. What if you're really struggling with sin? Well, his mercy will be new the next day. Things aren't going well at home. His mercy will be new the next day. Your family's walked away from Jesus. You have kids that don't believe. His mercy will be new the next day. So as you live in this balance as a Christian, am I glorifying God enough with my life? Am I the Jesus who is pointing people to the Father? Or am I the Jewish leader who's taking the credit and the glory and trying to create a life that's built around me and not around him. As you battle that every day, there's grace extended to us in this. Next week, as we read the rest of John 7, Jesus is going to, on the greatest day of this Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus is going to declare to the crowd, I am the giver of living water. Right? As they pour out this water every day, I am the giver of living water. And Jesus is going to say at the very beginning of chapter 8, this is the same festival, Jesus is going to say to the whole crowd, I am the light of the world. So as they light these massive pillars of fire every single night to remember God's light, Jesus says, I am that. That's me. I've come to light the way home. I am the giver of life. It's the spirit that I give. I am the festival of tabernacles. It's me because I'm God the Father. I am him. He's me. We do this together. I was in the pillar of fire that led you across the desert. I was there in the tabernacle when Moses set up the tent for the first time. I was there when water poured out of the rock and that water saved your lives in the desert. I was there. I'm it. And all of you are wandering in this wilderness of COVID. All of you are wandering in this wilderness of anxiety and fear and pain. All of us are suffering, waiting for the day we get to heaven, and it's finally done. 
We're living in these temporary dwellings. Like we're living in a tabernacle. I'm not going to live in this forever. One day I'm going to have my heavenly body. But along the way towards that promised land, Jesus is the giver of my water. He is the light, the pillar that I follow. How cool is that? Like if this book doesn't come alive to you as you read it, if you don't marvel at who Jesus is, That's pretty amazing. Let me pray for you. And then together, church, we'll go from this place and make a difference in this world. Heavenly Father, humbly, Lord Jesus, I come before your throne and I bring my church family before you. I bring myself before you. I struggle with sin, I struggle with brokenness and with weakness and I know that my church family struggles too. And we just lay that honestly before you. We bear ourselves before you and admit that we are in desperate need of your grace. We are not holy enough to enter your throne room. We're not holy enough to enter your paradise. We need your mercy to be new every morning because we make mistakes every day. And every day is this incredible battle for me to want to live my life for myself and not for you, God. It is. I want to spend my time on things that make me happy. I want to spend my saved money on things that make me happy. I want to look in creation for things to fill me. And God, forgive me for moments when I do that because it's supposed to be you. And I I use things of this creation, Jesus, to numb my pain when I'm supposed to come to you in my pain. Like we use screen time and I can use my phone, I can watch movies and I I can use all these different things to try to numb myself to the pain and the struggles that I go through in life. I'm supposed to bring them to you. I'm supposed to find peace in you. And yet it's so hard. And I pray, Lord Jesus, for the people struggling. This past two years, struggling. It's just not fun anymore. And I pray that you would draw my heart and other people's hearts back to finding rest in you. And not in all the other things that the world promises will give us rest. Lord, thank you that you've walked this church through a dark time. And that our world is living in a dark time. And I pray that you would make the light that we carry so much brighter in this dark world. That when people encounter people from the Bridgeway family, we are ambassadors of this grace. That is just so visible when people encounter us. That we know the king. That our lives have been changed by the king. I just pray that. I pray that as we enter the hockey rink and as we do our business... Uh, on our farms and as we interact at our jobs and people that just interact with us. So like that is a person who's been changed. That's a person who's experiencing peace during this anxious time. That's a person who is loved and forgiven even though they struggle. That's a person with hope. Lord Jesus, take care of our church family. Give us rest today as we go home, tonight as we go to sleep. Help us to remember the promises that you've made. 
and that in the moment when you could have drawn the most glory to yourself, you gave the glory away. You were selfless. You were humble. And because of that, I'm saved. Because of that, my boys can be saved. Because of that, everything's different. Lord Jesus, take care of your church family as they go from here. Take care of them. Care for their needs. Heal their hurts. Lift them up when they're, when they're too weak to, to stand on their own feet, Lord Jesus. Care for them. And make them a bright light wherever they go so that the world may know who you are. That's my prayer. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week, everyone.